Hey everyone, welcome. Well, here we are, episode 98 of DF Direct Weekly. This is our weekly show where we discuss the latest gaming and technology news and um, lots to discuss this week. First of all, joining me, Alex Battaglia. Hey there, Rich. I just want to say the year of 98 was a great year for video games. We had StarCraft, we had Half-Life, my goodness, Nagano Olympics 98 on the N64, some real classic titles. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, John, John Linneman is also joining us. That was also the year of Metal Gear Solid, right? And Zelda Ocarina of Time and all that kind of stuff. It was a mm-hmm. good year. Absolutely. Although, uh, thinking about it, I did read an article about how um, rock classics, you know, those radio stations that yes. just specialize on a single decade, they're kind of not doing the 90s because it just wasn't, <laughs> wasn't a great, de- great decade oh. for music. <laughs> it, it was the decade of alternative rock and whatever that means. Uh, people are still debating. Yeah. But look, this is indeed a gaming show, so let's talk about some games. First news topic, we're not going to talk about games. We're going to talk about hardware. <laughs> and um, yes, we're going to be covering PlayStation VR 2. I think we've mentioned in the past that John Linneman is going to be in charge of the coverage there. And um, we've got one of those multi-tier embargoes that enables us to talk about various things at various points. And um, John, I believe that the first phase of the embargo is now up and you can now reveal <laughs> what is inside the is. box. Yes, oh we yeah, did. I, I already unboxed it. Okay. So we, there's no drama of like slowly opening the lid and pulling things out because it's just, it's right here. So here it is. Okay. <laughs> So uh, just to be clear, there's no real spoilers there that we're avoiding. It's just a, a totally undramatic experience of a device that sits within a box and you have removed the device <laughs> so, from that box. Yes, I would say um, <laughs> actually the packaging experience is positive in that it's extremely simple compared to the original PSVR. I mean, you remember, Rich, that yep. original PSVR it had the... the sort of the pass-through box, all the different cables with numbers on them associated with it. You run all that stuff behind your TV. It was not the the best solution, I would say. Plus, there was the camera you had to wire. I mean, the whole thing was just pretty messy. And even that, it didn't include any controllers in the box or anything you had to rely on on the Move. Although I guess they sold Move bundles at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this thing, all it includes in the boxes, you've got your headset, of course, got some headphones to go with it, which by the way, this is kind of neat here. So it's maybe hard to see, but on the back, it just connects with, uh, you've got a little three and a half mini jack right here mm. and the headphones. So you can use any headphones, but the ones included are just earbuds and <laughs> it just sort of like clicks in on the one side, just like that. Uh, it's actually hard to do it from this angle because the wire's in the way. <laughs> so I say just like that, but uh, okay, there you go. Plug it in there. And then it has this extra little like bracing point where you just kind of plug it in there and then it's uh, connected. So that works pretty well. Okay. It also comes with the two controllers, which are here and um, an extra USB cable for charging and different sides for sizes for the headphone earbuds, but that's it. Right? There's nothing else to do it. It's literally just that headset with the one long cable that you can plug into the front of the PS5. And because it's USB-C, it almost kind of locks in place really nicely. So it feels secure. Uh, the cable is very lengthy. And uh, yeah, I mean, the controllers, these little, little wrist. Go- I mean, the, so the controllers then, 
the controllers are interesting because they are, it is exactly as I expected. It's the Oculus Touch controllers, right? Like it has the same kind of dual stick design with the, you know, a few buttons on there. It has that grip, the grip buttons there, plus the triggers. It has the same uh, capacitive kind of uh, buttons here on top. You know, so it's a really nice, but it feels good, right? Like I loved Oculus Touch. I always thought that was the way to go. I preferred that to the Vive ones. And the index knuckle controller things are also interesting, but I don't know. I just really like the simple circular design. It's, again, very Oculus, just larger. <laughs> <laughs> actually, that that's one thing I noticed. When you actually fumble around and, and need to pick up these controllers, like it's just like, wait, which side is which? Oh, oh <laughs> yeah. It's, oh, no, it's like this. And it, it feels weird to come in it from that angle. But other than that, it's very comfortable. They each have a little USB charging port right there, which is good. USB-C. Uh, if you remember, the, the Move controllers were for PS3 originally, so they had the old, like, mini USB, was it? Like, the, the now-defunct standard. I don't know. You What do you guys... Anything you want to know about the build quality or the feel of the actual hardware? Because we can't show it running or anything like that yet, obviously. No. Well, I did look at the embargo document, and we were allowed to show the lights. Well, I mean, this is so, this is thin wool. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we're trying <laughs> to, to show the lights. There, there, there's not much to show there. Like, if you remember, the PSVR one had those big LEDs on it. Yeah, the camera tracking, right? This doesn't have that because it has the inside-out tracking cameras, like the Oculus, right? So I think there's like one power light somewhere on here, and then the controllers themselves have have like an embedded light to let you know that they're on. Hmm. But there's not much in terms of lighting up. So I've got you a, have the, yeah, go ahead. I've got a question actually about the build quality and how it feels on the head a little bit because from my yeah. experience with VR, there's sometimes a bit of pressure on your oh, fork. Can't put it away. <laughs> there's a bit of pressure. <laughs> no, it doesn't fit. No, with the headphones. Um, Dang it, it doesn't work like that. Um, <laughs> there's a bit of pressure on the forehead as well as maybe a sense like there's weight on the front of your head, so you're kind of do get yeah. a sense that you have to tip down a little bit occasionally. Yeah, so what is it like um, in terms of weight, PSVR one I thought was was it was a good design, but I actually agree. It kind of felt like it was squeezing my head a little bit too much, and I found it a little unpleasant. Uh, the Oculus Rift S I thought was actually the most comfortable one up that I've tested thus far. Like the Quest feels terrible, I think, because it's very front heavy and and just there are, there are ways to mitigate that, but I never liked the way the Quest felt. Uh, the index was all right as well. I never liked the vibe as much. This one, I would say it's, it's very similar to the Oculus Rift S design, uh, where it's, it feels less like heavy and doesn't squeeze your head to the same degree as some of the earlier headsets. So I found it a lot more comfortable to wear for longer periods of time comparatively as PSVR would actually give me kind of a headache after, you know, certain sessions because just the way it squeezes your forehead and the back of your head here so this is definitely significantly more comfortable also these things here these these blackout blinders you remember that on on the original right they were they kind of would fall off real easily and just felt really not great these however are really nicely attached and more comfortable but the main thing is that it completely like darkens the space inside the headset so even if you're in a completely sunny room, there's no like light leak. It's just like you're putting this thing on and you're going into that other space. And that that really impressed me in terms of just 
I didn't realize how much like blocking out light would contribute to it mm-hmm. because most headsets have not done an amazing job at that. Some are definitely better than others, but I'm happy that this is not like the original PSVR in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's good. It has that same sort of like tightening system on the back. Button wise, you have the same sort of power button here in the middle. Um, I guess this is a microphone here. And then this button is key because that's what activates the uh, the cameras. Pass through. You know, for, yeah. for the pass through, which was, you know, we saw that on Oculus stuff for a while, but it actually has a physical hardware button for that, which you can see right there. Um, are you wearing this? I can't with, say. Are you, yeah. are you wearing this with glasses when you put it on? I am wearing it with glasses, okay. yeah. And uh, is that experience any different than <laughs> from other sets at all? Uh, or do you have like, uh, I, I don't know. I would say it is comparable enough to my experience with other modern headsets where it's pretty comfortable. Uh, you can feel a little bit of pressure from wearing the glasses. I actually have my old pair of glasses that I use, which are all scratched up anyway, that I've been putting on for this, just so I can get the lenses right up to it without worrying about yep. <laughs> damaging the lenses, right? But what I would really like is, so there's those services that allow you to submit a prescription for your glasses and get special yep. lenses made. Mm-hmm. And I really hope that somebody, I'm sure they will, does this for PSVR 2 because I would totally get that instead of wearing the glasses. So but, you can actually pop them out then? The lenses are replaceable? No, they, they, they click on top. Right, okay. So, and that's, that's how it's been working on all the different headsets. That's they just have like a lens that you just affix to the thing. And the way they're designed in here, actually, uh, it actually seems like it should be fairly simple to connect something to it okay so it's not like a flush surface each lens sticks out so i'm eager for that there's not much more we can say that's not related to <laughs> the, the user and, experience you know, the, we don't you can't right, talk the about the user experience. experience which is kind of ironic because if we'd actually uh, been invited to the previews we'd we'd already have quite a lot of knowledge to share <laughs> on the user true, experience yeah. you know just basic stuff like you know quality of the screen I guess we just have to wait for your uh, for, for your review on that, John. But I'm really looking forward yes. to that. Screen discussion will be a huge part of that because I think screens in... I'm not going to say anything about this one yet. I will just say that if you remember, especially the original PSVR, it was not bad for the time, but it had elevated black levels. It had this very grainy, noisy appearance to it, especially in dark areas. And, you know, when you looked at a bright scene, it just kind of had this, like dull kind of not not super intense look to it that was it was just kind of dull and grainy as well right uh and most headsets kind of had that especially early on um the more obviously the more pixels you have the better it is so like the the rift s for me was a big step up uh valve index was a big step up those look really nice and sharp um and then you know fov stuff as well right like the, the PSVR one had a pretty darn narrow FOV. You really got that feeling that you're looking through like a, a black hole, <laughs> right? Like a little yeah. periscope <laughs> or something. So that's all stuff I want to address when talking about this new headset is how it's changed from that. And we'll get into all that. I mean, the specs, but, the, yeah. the, the specs are out there and it's public knowledge. And um, I think it's fair to say before we go into the review period that in terms of the core specifications, Sony has kind of hit a home run, I think. Um, and the question is whether the user experience is going to live up to those specifications. But going into this, I'd say there's a lot of reasons to be positive, right? Yeah, I would say okay. so. The specs are very good. So 
uh we'll get we'll get to that soon mm-hmm. but yeah i mean build quality it's what you would hope for mm-hmm. i would box say. quality though john remember the debacle of the uh the ripped oh. playstation 5 box <laughs> how dare he so they took the exact same approach right okay it has that thing where like the outer box is all connected so like the flaps lift up and everything it seems like it would be very easy to tear. <laughs> the difference here, though, is that the lid, the internal box lid, can open up without having to remove the outer layer. So it's it's like opening a little like treasure chest kind of thing. Okay. And then all the hardware is just sitting in there. Get your little accessories box. It's all covered in that kind of like um, I don't know that that soft packaging material to prevent damage and transit. Um, yeah, so. So it's simple stuff. I will say the best way I would describe the packaging for this product is sustainable. Okay. Mm. All right. That sounds good. If you know what I mean. Like they don't use uh, the materials they use and everything. It feels very recyclable. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, (laughs) take that as you will. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. I think that's all we can actually say about PlayStation VR 2 in in the here and now. There, I said it. Um, but in the here, I don't now. think there's too long to wait <laughs> until we actually get some reviews there. And um, I think we can talk about the stuff we want to do, which would be obviously a hardware review. Um, and secondly, uh, possibly standalone content for key titles like uh, Horizon Call of the Mountain and GT7 and anything else that, that sort of catches our eye in that in that review period mm-hmm. uh, and games that we actually receive. I'm going to be interested to see. I mean, I don't know whether Resident Evil Village is is due to get an update soon. Uh, I think they say it's supposed to be at launch okay. or hmm. something. So I guess we'll find hmm. out. Uh, there's there's several um, games that are getting free updates. I okay. think there's Tetris Effect, uh, Res Infinite, uh, GT Seven, obviously Resident Evil Eight, and there was a few others as well. So there's at least like eight or nine games I think in there that do have updates so good stuff uh well it all looks very promising quite exciting and uh i guess we'll (laughs) we'll just keep you posted on um what we can discuss and when but yeah obviously we're going to be going big on it in the review period Um, but let's move on to the next news topic so we're going to be talking about the latest nintendo direct um announcement i think it was earlier in the week the direct followed soon after and I'd say it was a really positive showing. I mean, obviously, there's... Uh, I don't know whether we can call it jitters, but obviously we're reaching the end of the Nintendo Switch's life cycle at the moment. There's the feeling, based a lot on third-party titles, that the system is literally running out of steam, literally running out of uh, hardware grunt to be able to power some of the latest games. Uh, but ultimately, this Direct, from my perspective, seemed to basically just double down on the system's strengths which is to say games that are crafted for the hardware, Nintendo first party, uh, leveraging the existing library with, uh, well, there, there was a, a, a very large amount of downloadable content uh, marketed within that. And secondly, the, just the presentation of the, of the Direct itself, which um, I'd say was highly curated and actually provided context to the imagery, very little in the way of just random stuff bombarding you. Although that did happen towards the end. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, where do we want to start with this? I guess we could, uh, we're going to talk about uh, a couple of the big things separately, uh, which is to say the Metroid Prime uh, Shadow Drop and also um, the Zelda Tears of the Kingdom uh, trailer towards the end. But let's start at the beginning. Pikmin 4 
we got a release date for it. We know it's when it's coming, which is great news. Game itself looked fantastic, but certainly of the Switch era, right, John? I mean, it looks like Pikmin. It, yeah, I, I need to go back to Pikmin <laughs> three and compare, but it reminded me of that sort of visual style, which is not a bad thing. That they made good use of the technology, beautifully rendered like small scale objects. Uh, I assume there's going to be fantastic food rendering in this again because that's <laughs> that's a specialty of the Pikmin team. It's just interesting to see this at last because I feel like Nintendo and Miyamoto himself has been like mentioning Pikmin Four for like I don't know eight years or something. Yeah, it does feel so. That way. Uh, it's interesting that it's finally appearing at the end of the Switch life cycle. So, uh, I mean, I don't know what do you what do you guys think of the the visual presentation on that? I was actually a bit surprised to see a usage of screen space reflections on the water in the one scene uh, that they had in the game. That surprised me a little bit because, I don't know, screen space reflections are seen at times on Switch titles, but not always. Sometimes they go back further into like older techniques, like planar reflections and things Which, like that. I think that would have been more fitting here, right? Because like the yeah, camera is so, usually yeah. from pointing downward, right? So what's in screen space is not going to be a lot in many cases. Yeah. So we'll we'll see how it fares out when the title and how much camera control there ends up being. Because, um, you know, in a Pikmin title, it's pretty directed with the camera at times. Um, I, I was excited to see this game. I really like the Pikmin series a lot. Um, I guess the one thing I did notice, and uh, Rich and I were talking about before this direct started, were was I think the rendering of like the geometry is pretty like the geometry density is pretty high yeah because uh, you have to get it pretty close but it was the texture resolution that at times seemed like it was not like it didn't live up to the how close the camera could get to uh, the things at a time and I was wondering when the switch 2 does come out exactly what type of upgrades we can look forward to seeing it in games at all presuming that it is backwards compatible and it runs switch one titles if we're gonna see uh like patches like we saw on the xbox side of things that would like increase resolution performance and even sometimes asset quality uh because you know like not every game's textures are uh authored at the the smaller spec to fit on the device sometimes they're authored much higher resolution so i'm curious to see what this game could look like potentially on Switch uh, too, as well as the frame rate, which the trailer looked to be 30 FPS to my eye. And I'm curious if that's another thing like a Switch 2 could do, would we'd see a 60 FPS conversion of this, which obviously would benefit the game immensely. So mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, these games have always looked gorgeous, like the, the Pikmin titles. They've always had a very distinct look. They've always had Nintendo's eye for tailoring uh, the experience to the hardware capabilities of the device. I think in terms of the, the textures, though, it was a kind of evidence of a mixed bag, almost, mm -hmm. where yeah. some stuff looked highly detailed and other stuff didn't. And that's the kind of inconsistency mm -hmm. that doesn't really, that, that, that stands out. Um, yeah, very curious as to whether Nintendo will adopt a strategy of actually deploying upgrades for existing games. Um I, I think it's probably a really good idea, right? Certainly in terms of driving adoption of a new machine and in terms of uh, providing a good reason to upgrade an existing uh, system uh, with mm -hmm. a new one because your existing library may be able to benefit from from those upgrades quite substantially, especially in uh, docked play, I would suggest. So, yeah, I mean, I've got too much more to say about that. One thing I will say uh, about a lot of the, the stuff that was uh, in this is that it's, there is still a certain degree 
And I think it's actually a really good thing of the game remains an enigma to a certain extent. And uh, <laughs> you, you do get a, a, a degree of um, guided uh, VO, which tells you what they're actually showing you in this trailer. But what they're actually showing you is just a, a teaser, a hint, really. And there's still a huge amount we don't really know about Pikmin. But, you know, there's, mm -hmm. a, there's a dog in it. <laughs> there's a dog and it and it's walks uh, around with you or correct, something. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was they were saying, "Hey, there's a dog in it. Uh, stay tuned for more information." <laughs> That's very Nintendo. <laughs> yeah, uh... <laughs> which I thought was fantastic. Um, let's move on. Uh, the, the next title that caught my eye was uh, Samba de Amigo, Dreamcast classic. It actually made uh, there was a, there was a phase where um, Maracas were a perfectly viable peripheral upgrade for your console. <laughs> which, yeah. Which hasn't been to the point where it's you can actually while. get Chinese knockoff Maraca peripherals for your Dreamcast. Yeah. Which, uh, which I thought it was, was a, fantastic. another early example of Sega uh, releasing something ahead of the curve with motion yeah. controls. Mm -hmm. Wow. Right? Yeah. So which actually makes it a good fit for the for the Switch and uh, and the Joy-Cons really because they stand in as um as Maracas on this one. Exactly. That's pretty cool. <laughs> um but yeah. yeah, it's it's nice to see <laughs> another Sega classic return. That's it for looks, sure. It looks cool. I'm, I'm the color scheme is interesting though. It's sort of more that cyan magenta look rather than the the bright primaries of the original. Yeah, so that's like it, a Dreamcast it, staple, though. Bright primary colors. Yeah, so I'm a little so. surprised with this with the shift, but I guess you know it's a new game, so they wanted to go for a new style. That's cool. Happy mm -hmm. it's back. And uh, something else that caught your eye, John? Ghost Trick. I mean, just it's cool that that has become available again, uh, or will be, because that was a classic sort of adventure uh, puzzle game on the Nintendo DS. And okay. it's been it's been locked to the DS, and based on the visuals they showed here, it looks extremely sharp. So it's not just like a, you know, slapping the original game back and onto the Switch. It looks like a a new project that's been reworked. For a lot of these games that come over from the DS, it's always the question of what do you do with the second screen. And um, I'm imagining here, um, motion controls <laughs> uh like to a certain degree and also like the ui maybe being contextual at that point in time I think they'll just change the ui around yeah to, yeah, yeah. to make it work without the stylus mm -hmm. and uh another title which really stood out disney illusion island uh, just for the, the art style really looked quite fantastic i thought yeah i don't know what more to say about that but it's uh it looks really clean and nice mm -hmm. uh i hope it's good yeah. <laughs> I hope it's also not a Unity title with a 50 hertz bug in it or something like that. Well, I think I'm horrified by it because the, the, the trailer footage shows, um, you know, like they use the decimated animation on purpose here yeah, to make yeah. it look like an animated show. But what if the camera is also decimated animation or something like that? That's the it one looks, thing I'm always It looks about. fine in the trailer, yeah, I'd but, say. But hopefully it's fine. Hopefully not, yeah. Uh, Kirby's Return to Dreamland made an appearance, and you're 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 kind of excited by this one, right, John? Yeah, I do. I do actually enjoy those games, and the original on Wii was a really nice return to form, sort of uh, referencing the classics. Those are really good games that it just kind of it's it's fun for everyone, I think, uh, and just you know beautiful design and some weird post-apocalyptic themes of course as always because kirby's yeah, weird <laughs> that was the t that was when they um that was originally on the wii 
and it was kind of like after a dark period of Kirby's history where there wasn't many great Kirby games. I mean, I guess more great traditional ones because there was stuff like the uh, Canvas Curse, but yeah, this was a return to form. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. And uh, before we talk about a couple of the heavy hitters that, that uh, were shown or dropped in the case of Metroid, um, there was the announcement that Game Boy and uh, Game Boy Advance titles are coming to Nintendo Online, uh, sort of bolstering the back catalogue of uh, legacy games there. And um, again, I was, I, was, I was actually quite excited by that, to actually see Tetris again after so many years, uh, the original, the OG, and um, the concept. I mean, the thing about these games is that they never really work when you play them uh, in a kind of living room environment. But, well, you know, on the Super Game Boy, <laughs> it's better there. They work like, pretty well. That's like on a CRT and all those yeah, things. Yeah. You know, it's got a different feel. Yeah, I just think you know, handheld games on a handheld, you know, classic handheld games on a great handheld. What can go wrong? <laughs> Hopefully, the emulator is decent. I guess it yeah. seems solid, and they have dot matrix uh, simulation there. Yeah, cool. I saw that as well too. Um, I guess I'm just happy that these games aren't just unlocked, like locked away in the Nintendo Vault for an eternity again. Um, and the one thing I would really like to see, though, since they are on the NSO, uh, is that this carries over to the next Switch device. Like, I would really love to see all of those. Sorry, I just smacked my <laughs> microphone here. I, I would really love to see all of those games that you have attached to an account on a Nintendo account, much like we see on Xbox and some, yeah, obviously the PlayStation stuff too backwards compatible on the next device as well because presuming it's a handheld console again like it should be uh you would definitely want to have that huge catalog of games available day one Mm -hmm. well that's the big the big topic for the next uh, machine right because nintendo has provided uh, a good degree of backwards compatibility on past devices but the switch was a um definitely uh you know a kind of uh change you know a, a shift in how they make consoles um and they weren't able to do that but they are actually you know slowly getting there via emulation so yeah i mean what they actually do on the next generation console i think is going to be their uh the kind of litmus test really for nintendo going forward i think the concept of having a library of games that stays with you from generation to generation has now been established it's now been established as a as a good thing and you know, as we were talking about earlier with uh, with Pikmin, there is the way they're forward there to actually enhance existing titles and, and renew them for new hardware, which I think has, again, been a concept that's been proven out by the competition. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that will be the way forward there. Uh, let's talk about The Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom. We got another two and a half minute trailer there. Again, you know, just snippets of action, quite enigmatic, does look fantastic. <laughs> um john thoughts on this trailer uh yeah that's that's an interesting one it looks i mean it looks like it's kind of like retreading some ground but it looks pretty good visually and i like the stuff in the sky so i mean it's i wonder if this is going to be a you know it's zelda but uh if this is going to be kind of a majora's mask situation where it's perhaps underappreciated initially. You know what I mean? Because th- they don't usually do these sort of follow-up games in this way. And this is... That's an interesting point, right? Because there's always a, a kind of seismic shift in presentation or gameplay. Right. Uh, moving from generation to generation or from game to game. And this is 
you know, unashamedly a sequel to Breath of the Wild. Right? Exactly. So there's Majora's Mask, of course, and then there's the two, the Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons on Game Boy as well that were kind of a follow-up to uh, Link's Awakening. And all of those games have had issues with the initial perception because, you know, it just felt like more of the same. I mean, there's a lot of new stuff here, but I'll be curious to see if this has the same impact considering that it is sort of just following up with what Breath of the Wild achieved. And that game was radically different for the series. But there was still a lot of room for improvement, and I'm hoping they can actually figure that out. Uh, I will say, though, looking at the world map has a lot of floating geometry. It has rail grinding. It's pretty much like Sonic Frontiers, but then you had in, like the weird buildable vehicles. And it's also got a little bit of that ratchet, and, uh, not ratchet, uh, banjo nuts and bolts mm-hmm. in it from Xbox 360. So I don't know. It's like Banjo Frontiers, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Banjo Frontiers. I'm so. I'm interested uh, in the fact that, like John saying, it's direct continuation. I've read that it uses a similar world map, and we, the one that's one of those fun things for Digital Foundry is you're going to be able to oh, look yeah. at the har- uh, the differences at the exact maybe same area of the world map and see what technologically is different now at this time, or even artistically, because you know maybe they, there's a little bit changes there. Uh, artistically as well. Uh, one thing I did notice, and we're still kind of chasing it a little bit, <laughs> is that the initial we talked back in the day when we said this game is too big for Switch, we did which we definitely that. said, which we definitely said, uh, um, it's too big for Switch. <laughs> it's too big for Switch. Um, <laughs> that the initial trailer did, in certain aspects, look a bit a bit more pristine or flawless than what we're seeing most recently, um, and it may just be down to image quality and or the things that they chose to present in that initial trailer versus what we're seeing now, which is more like uh, unfettered uh, gameplay feed more so. Like we're actually seeing like the gameplay camera and not just cinematic camera stuff. Um, so that can have definitely affect the appearance of a game uh, as, you know, like watchdog downgrade controversy show over time, things like that. Um, so I'm curious to see once again, how this will straddle the generation like I was with Pikmin because 30 fps target uh, i imagine it's going to be very similar in terms of like resolution stuff yeah. that we saw with the last game uh but i'm curious like based upon the way this game emulates so well um in whatever form of you play it uh and it does scale really well to 60 fps i'm curious to see if this is another thing that switch could do switch 2 could do because ugh, i don't know 60 fps is always just like a really prime way to play a game in comparison to 30. So it's really, I want to see what they do when they cross the generation here to the next Switch with this game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess the other, the other thing which we should talk about is that we're all for disclosure and transparency in, in these uh, marketing materials. And we've never really questioned Nintendo Directs before because, you know, it's, you know, ultimately it's just <laughs> switch, switch capture. But we have had the situation where there's still some question marks over that Switch trailer for uh, Tears of the Kingdom, which we saw yeah, a initial, while back. Yeah, the original and then, one. of course, there's the Bayonetta 3 situation where everything looked a lot better and ran at 60, right? Yeah. That was... Uh, <laughs> so, you know... How about that? You know, I think... Let's give Nintendo the benefit of the doubt. Um, but, you know, if you aren't showing Switch disclose that you're not showing switch please i think that's you know rather than having the blanket disclosures that we have on playstation i think you know that they've they've established trust that there is you know this is ultimately going to be switch material but if you're not showing switch uh then please let us know (laughs) i think it's only only fair um one topic which I th- do think we should be discussing is that the you know the price points for uh, Tears of the Kingdom have now oh, been established. Yeah. 
And um, yeah, we're looking at a $70 game. And um, I guess it was inevitable. I mean, this is a at least a six-year development, right? Huge staff, I'd imagine. Uh, satellite Studios, I mean, isn't it Monolith Soft typically get involved as well? As far so, as we know, yeah. Yeah, so I think there is there are justifications for charging $70 for the game. Um, I guess my question is, <laughs> this thing is going to sell untold millions anyway, so did they need to put up the price to $70? Uh, so, you know, it's it's all about the, the platform margin again, which comes up time and time again when we talk about these price increases. John, what do you make of this being the first $70 game for Switch, assuming that it is? It's, it is a little bit of a strange move to do this uh, at the end of a generation, it feels like, which is what I think makes it feel off-putting to people. But, you know, uh, production costs being what they are, I can kind of see how it would happen. I think the the big difference here, though, is with the other platform holders, if you have a $70 game at launch, right, uh, you can usually find that deeply discounted not too far mm. after launch. And, you yeah. know, if you wait even longer than that, you'll find it, like, you know, 10 20 bucks easily that <laughs> doesn't like this that does not happen with nintendo games they no. don't they do not have price drops like that so this is definitely going to be one of those cases where you can't just say well i'm just going to wait for a sale so because you're probably not going to get much of a sale maybe years later but uh so in that sense it kind of feels like nintendo's just they know people want it and you know i don't know it's just it makes me wonder, though, like how the strategy is going to play out, because as I mentioned before, it does have that weird sequelitis thing going on, where similar to Majora, which is beloved now. But if you combine that with this higher price point, I could see them getting some backlash for this game. If people mm-hmm. don't feel it lives up to the to the prior game, for instance, or is too similar, which we don't know if it is or not, uh, they might take more of an issue with the price, right? So we'll mm-hmm. see. I mean, there is the sense, certainly there's been um, feedback from investors that um, Nintendo are kind of too late to the party with an, a next generation system. Oh, yeah. It does look, I, I do strongly believe at this point that we probably will see some trailer announcement towards the end of the year, similar to what we saw with the original Switch. And um, and then we won't see anything until early into uh, 2024. Oh, my. But, it's terrifying um, <laughs> that year. Uh, um, oh, uh, with regards to the price, I think, I mean, general inflation, it's uh, a little bit fine that prices go up for a lot of things. But uh, this is, once again, Nintendo is the sole uh, person or so, sole entity selling this game in like a typical manner. Like they have the control completely over <laughs> where it's coming. It's not like, you know, like Steam CD key reselling and things like that. Um, so it is like, like John said, you're not going to get steep deep uh steep discounts on this game most likely for a long time but then i look at other games like just uh two weeks ago when forespoken came out and it's like 79 99 euros on steam that yeah. game and then this game which is probably going to be it's going to have nintendo quality all o- written all over it like it's it's fine and it, if it's anything like the last one it's got like so many hours of gameplay in it and just random sandbox stuff you can do to have fun. Um, so I don't feel so... I'm not so negative about it, actually, in the end. Uh, I mean, for I this specific game. It's not Kirby or something. I wouldn't necessarily tie quality to 
sandbox Price? stuff and oh. uh, things to do. <laughs> well, often, yeah, there's all. I didn't mean a negative way. Go together, right? Like, yeah, but you know, in this game, it seems like it's very tied into the gameplay. The sandbox Assassin's stuff. Creed it's, Valhalla it's... would be the greatest game ever if that were true. Since it <laughs> That's a hundred fifty euro game in my book, Joe. So. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, the pricing situation is is more dire for you guys in. In the Eurozone, because, um, the <laughs> it's ex- awful. The, ex- yeah. the exchange rates are hammering you. Plus, you have the VAT added on on top. Uh, actually, as uh, a mm-hmm. as a result, it's kind of like cheaper just to import the game for me. Use my US use really? my US account in US dollars, and just uh, have it shipped here. And if you add up the cost between buying it locally and buying it from the US via Amazon, it's usually the same or cheaper just to get the US version. <laughs> And then you get the US <clears throat> yeah, version. So without yeah. the giant USK badge, which feels like they said they should be giving us a discount in Germany for that. <laughs> Do the size yeah. of the USK badge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, there should be an uglification tax exactly. on, mm-hmm. uh, on European Agreed. package games with that. Those like, it really is hideous. <laughs> okay, uh, let's talk about the final part of the direct. Um, not chronologically, that was Zelda. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, in terms of our coverage of it, uh, Metroid Prime has had a remaster. Uh, it was released directly after the event, and um, Retro Studios handled it. And it's there are arguments that it's actually much more than a remaster because it's absolutely spectacular. Yeah, that's the thing. And based on the credits, it does seem like it's Retro Studios and people from Iron Galaxy helped out as well, interestingly. Wow. Uh, but apparently yeah. this this is based on you know, the same uh, Retro Studios internal engine. What was it called? Rude, R-U-D-E, I think. And it's an actual port. Like, this is not emulation. Like, if you look at uh, Skyward Sword, for instance, that was just, that was based on emulation, right? This is not. This is this is a recreation of that original game, a proper port. And, man, they did a ton of work to it. I actually don't, I don't like that they call it remastered because it's it's a lot more than that. Because usually remastered implies it's like, well, these are the same graphics. We're just rendering them at a higher resolution and frame rate. Uh, and that's but this time it's like, no, this is this is pretty much a full on remake at the level of something like Demon Souls on PS5, right? Where it's the same fundamental game, but all the visuals have been massively upgraded and changed. Uh, versus Dead Space, which is a different kind of thing, and that is a proper remake because the game itself is completely rebuilt and has a ton of changes to it, right? This is the same yeah, base right. game, but it's just with much more advanced visuals, and uh, they also have a lot of control options as well, including a, a dual-stick yeah. mode that plays more like a modern game, but still allows you to use the lock-on, which feels really good. There's a pointer-based mode, like the Wii ports, uh, and Metroid Prime 3, and then there's the more traditional style as well. So it's mm-hmm. it's an impressive uh, kind of remake. I, I'm going to call it Metroid Prime Remake, actually, because I feel like nope. that it deserves <laughs> that label. There's a John Carpenter put out on Twitter that you can call these type of titles refurbishments, John. Ooh, refurbishments. I, that's, that's, that's pretty good. That's a new good. R-E that's word to put in there. I always um, called them really <laughs> visual remakes because it's the, you know, they remade the yes. visuals, but everything else is the same. I think Tilu mm-hmm, part yeah. one is in there as well. Is that, but I like these refurbishments. It's a, it's a good, John Carpenter wins again. <laughs> Thank you, John. Um, I was going to say the one thing that actually reminded me of, the one thing it reminds me of technologically from all the screenshots I've seen, it reminds me a lot of Halo 4. 
I don't know if that is picked up on well, your end I would at say... all. Just, just like an extreme, uh, like like the, the color tones a little bit. And also then just like Halo 4 was really known in comparison to Halo 3 or Reach for uh, doing a lot more baking of its lighting. And that's one thing I noticed that is rapidly, like total, not rapidly, so dramatically changed uh, the, the looks in certain areas like I saw inside like the ship or like the snow levels and things like that. Just the amount of just the effect that lighting has now in the game is way different. And it kind of reminds me of Halo 4 as a result. There was always um, a little bit of a Metroid Prime-ish flair to Halo 4, I thought. Something about, you know, the architecture mm-hmm. they built uh, specifically with the, uh, what, what was their name? The um, Oh, the Forerunners? No, or uh, the the energy weapon guys, you know. I, I forget. That's, uh, that's how much of it... They're like Forerunner That's how much of an things. impact those characters made on us, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, but I yes, it, it does have yeah. a, it does resemble it in some degree. So that's that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just uh, reading the uh, tweet from Oatmeal Dome, who's previously dug deep into um, Switch titles and kind of unearthed the origins of emulation versus um, U engines and whatnot. I mean, he's basically saying that it looks to be the original Metroid Prime code base ported to the latest version of their proprietary game engine, which. Um, seems to have been an ongoing uh, endeavor since the original Metroid Prime. So, you know, I guess the implication there, the the speculation almost, is that maybe we're getting a preview of the new features of, of the new engine or the latest iteration of the engine um, as seen through the lens of the original game, which I think is, mm-hmm. is, is an interesting outlook. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what the, the next game is all about. But in the meantime, um, Oliver's going to be taking a look at this one. I know you're... That's what it was. You're gutted, yeah. John, that, that, <laughs> this, that this dropped <sighs> at the same period as PSVR 2, because this is one of your favourite games ever. It is, yeah. But I'm, I'm, that's, that's why it's good to have uh, more people working with us now, and Oliver will do an awesome job. So uh, it's in good hands. Yeah. Okay, good stuff. <clears throat> okay, let's tackle the final news topic of this Direct, and it's all about Hogwarts Legacy. And uh, we're going to kick off with two questions from supporters here. Um, this first one from Christopher de Greuter. Apologies if the pronunciation is incorrect there. Uh, but the question, Hi team, with the very positive critical response for Hogwarts and the very LGBT positive awareness within the game, including a trans character and many other small details, do you feel more comfortable in covering this game? Uh, I would love to see this game being covered by DF in some way, also because I feel the development team really tried to do something special and could use your feedback. And there was a response to this question from CTG867. I would like to respectfully disagree with this individual. It would be my preference for DF not to spend time and effort covering a game that is going to directly enrich such an openly hateful person. There's so much great stuff that I would rather see covered. Dead Space PC, Metroid Prime Remastered, Returnal PC. I mean, he's got a big bunch of games here, and it is indeed a pretty busy time. Uh, those other titles, Wild Hearts, Tomic Heart, Like a Dragon Ishin, Company of Heroes 3, Kirby's Return to Dream, Dreamland, Wolong, and yeah, of course, there's the PSVR 2 launch, et al. So, yeah, um going to answer this one but i'll start straight off by saying that the state of the discourse surrounding this game especially on social media is super toxic and i'm just 
not going to engage with any of that right now. Um, and as things stand, it's difficult to cover the game when we haven't actually been sent it. Uh, we don't have Hogwarts Legacy. Uh, Warner Brothers have contacted them. They say that they'll supply code to us on launch day, uh, which is today. This is the day that we're filming this particular DF Direct. And the reason they're not supplying the code is uh, that there's going to be a day one patch that they want factored into any coverage we do, uh, which is nothing new, right? So the question then becomes, does Digital Foundry cover this game? And what these two supporter questions are demonstrating is that there's no one course of action that's going to make everybody happy. Um, and with the toxicity surrounding the game and our own personal views on the franchise creator, we've chosen not to talk about it in the run-up to launch. Um, but it's out now, though, and ultimately our job is to comment and critique on game technology, performance and presentation uh, in a way that's useful to our audience. So when we get the game, we'll assess it and figure out how we want to cover it. Um, when we've actually seen it, of course. Um, does covering the game actually mean that we're endorsing the creator in any way? I mean, that's fairly obvious. No. Um, but at the same time, as a journalist, I'm not on board with the idea that a critique of a game is an advert or an endorsement for a game, and therefore we shouldn't cover it at all. That that doesn't seem right to me. That's not what editorial is fundamentally, and it's not the reason why we do what we do. Uh, what I will say, though, in response to uh, CTG867, he's got this big list of games here, great games that he wants to see covered, and we want to see them covered as well. So there's not going to be an either-or scenario here. Um, all of those titles, if we feel they're worth coverage, are going to get them. So that's where we stand on that uh, right now. And I guess that's uh, where... We're going to leave things for now. Okay, so let's move on to the next part of the show, which is a supporter Q&A. This is where every week we put out a call to our supporters to pose questions for the latest uh, edition of DF Direct Weekly. And um, we pick the best, or more typically the ones we're actually equipped to answer <laughs> and uh, present them for you at the end of every show. And we're going to kick off with this one from um, Techno Hippie. Um, hi, DF family. I finally saw Avatar 2 in cinemas in glorious VFR. I found the 48 FPS shots truly remarkable and very pleasing to my brain. Water dripping off bodies has never looked this good. Oh, I'll boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a statement to make. Uh, while I understand why Cameron chose to use 24 FPS for static character shots, but not always, question mark, their juxtaposition with HFR shots often switching between frame rates every few seconds eventually made them look like a slideshow. <laughs> this next bit of the question kills, kills me. <laughs> I love it. Uh, as old people die out <laughs> and gamers <laughs> take over our world... Rise up. <laughs> I look forward to the high frame rate movie future. You're all obviously proponents of high frame rate interactive experiences. What are your thoughts on high frame rate movies? Uh, I've not watched Avatar 2, but I have seen a lot of comments from uh, people in the games in industry who found this um, switch between 24 and 40 FPS, 48 FPS content to be extremely jarring. Um, what a huge mistake. Has either of you actually watched it? No, I've not seen it. No. No, I, I don't really. I mean, I watched the first Avatar and, it, you know, it's one of these films that was so long and, and not that interesting that yeah, <laughs> yeah. my rear end actually got numb. 
and I uh, wanted to leave. So I don't really, um, you know, I'll catch up with it once it's available I, to stream, I guess. I think... But, but will it be the 48 I think FPS the 40 8 FPS approach they took here was completely backwards and wrong. Like, if you're not going to shoot the whole film that way, they shouldn't have done it. Because this is... So, in games, we often have performance and quality mode, right? And you ever... Yep. I'm sure you guys have noticed this, but if you're playing in, like, the 60 FPS mode and you switch to 30, the 30 mode instantly feels horrible. You know, not to say 30 is great necessarily, but like it's it's that contrast when you switch and reduce your frame rate. That initial experience feels really bad, but then your eyes get used to it and you're like, whatever, right? You do become accustomed to it, uh, but it's the transition that's jarring. And that's the problem here is you're going between, you're basically having the frame rate every other shot. And I feel like yeah. bouncing back and forth between the two uh, is extremely jarring. And I feel like, he says he understands why Cameron chose to use that, but I don't. I don't think I don't. No. I don't understand. <laughs> I don't either. To me, that just shows a lack of experience and understanding <clears throat> of the way the brain works with various frame rates. And I think it was not a smart move. And I suspect the movie will look better if you just watch it at twenty four across the board. Then yeah. There's another question here of like whether the entire film was shot at forty eight. And then when they did 24 scenes, they would just literally half the playback. Uh, they would just cut out the frames. Or if it was actually shot at 24 and as a result has a different motion. No, I think it was shot at 24 uh, with different cameras. So, it's kind of like so, uh, the IMAX stuff, right? Where they would shoot some scenes with IMAX cameras, but the IMAX cameras were so big and bulky, they couldn't easily do the whole movie that way. For the whole movie that I, way. I yeah. can't imagine it's the same for high frame rate stuff. Like, I would hope it's uh, done in a way that's at least somewhat consistent. <laughs> it doesn't sound consistent here. And I, when someone asked me about this on Twitter already, I was like, I would... I, my brain would probably die watching this movie a little bit, much like John was describing. I actually always have trouble when this happens in certain films. Like I like a lot of heroic bloodshed movies, like those <laughs> Hong Kong stuff, and they do uh, when they do slow motion. Back in the day, it was literally just you know the same frame rate, but just reduced its play speed, so it never looked consistent. It always looked really jarring. You know, I don't know. I when frame rate changes my brain really notices it so i think i wouldn't like it here and i'd prefer just a consistent whatever sorry heroic bloodbath heroic bloodshed is the heroic genre blood... of film that's <laughs> it's what it's a genre. is this something with the, the, the youth are saying right? <laughs> is what the youth in 1980s hong kong must have really loved i guess yeah <laughs> okay yeah i think none of us really understand why he chose to do 24 and 48 and it is bizarre because you know James Cameron is at the forefront of of movie making technology, so this is this just struck me as weird. <laughs> it, and I guess that you know another sort of uh, correlation would be when a game runs at sixty but has thirty FPS cutscenes. You know, oh, you, yeah. you could instantly tell the difference, and it looks weird. So again, the the concept of doing that in a non interactive form is is even more baffling. Uh, let's move on to the next question. This one from F to the G. <laughs> And it begins, high D to the F. <laughs> uh, there is still no announcement of a, a Switch successor and no credible bigger leaks. I do think there are some credible leaks. Maybe we'll do something on that in, in due course. So we really can't expect it to launch with Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Does the reveal and launch of the Nintendo Switch give any indications what to expect of the reveal and launch of its successor? Uh, or... Is a look into the sales figures of the current console more enlightening? Thanks for your thoughts on this. Well, I think the, the sales figures of the current console, 
show that the Switch has been a resounding success, a galactically great console, basically. Um, it looks as though it's going to be outselling PlayStation 2. It's going to become the Nintendo's best-selling console, I think, um, if, if the recent reports to be believed. Um, in terms of any sort of clues as to the launch of uh, or, the, or the release of the Switch 2, it's entirely in Nintendo's hands, right? Any th- any thoughts on this one, John? Mm, I think the main thing that's holding them up, besides the component shortages and the whole uh, COVID situation, is I- I've said it before, but this is the first time they'll be launching a new console under this new management, and the Switch being as successful as it is, transitioning to the next generation is likely something they're dreading and uh, worried over, right? Because this is... Again, new management, but traditionally this has not been a strong point for Nintendo. They've had these very successful platforms, and then the next generation they drop the ball, and it ends up not even coming close to achieving the same success. Uh, Obviously, they don't want to do that again, (laughs) and I'm sure they're trying to figure that out while the Switch is still selling well. So, I, I mean, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes on this stuff, but I would imagine that... There's definitely issues on that side, and we mm. don't know what the review what the reveal will look like either, right? Because again, different management. How are they going to present this? Uh, was it just going to be dropped like a trailer, like the first one? Because you remember the original Switch was they put out that concept trailer, and then like we're going to reveal more info the following the next year in like January, and mm. they did, and it was a pretty low key kind of announcement, I would say, compared to the others, where like you know when PlayStation 5 was shown for the first time. And I guess, you know, Xbox Series X maybe had something like that where they revealed it at the Keeleys. But still, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know what to expect at this point, and I'm curious to see what approach they take. Mm. I think it's all going to come down to what the new machine actually is. I think in terms of credible leaks, I would be extremely surprised if the T34, T39 Tegra chip isn't in it at this point. Um, so, you know, there are certain things which we could we could probably speculate upon, like, you know, what does a uh, very small Ampere GPU look like, um, you know, NVIDIA Ampere architecture, starved of power, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, what can you actually do with that? The question is that, you know, power performance components have never been the core aspect of the, uh, of the Nintendo experience. Um, the question is, what are they going to do with that component? How is it going to be packaged? Is it just going to be a, a Switch 2? Is it going to be a Super Switch? You know, essentially, you know, if you look back at Super NES right. versus NES, you know, it's, it's you know, the best console they could put out at the time based on similar principles. And maybe we'll be seeing that again. Um, but yeah, I guess there's not too much we can speculate upon because, you know, they are masters of the of the surprise. Almost. Oh yeah! I mean, when 3DS came out, when it was first revealed, it blew my mind. Right? You know, the concept, just the concept of it. Even though it turned out that the specs are actually pretty poor, it <laughs> didn't seem to matter in the event. Right? I guess it kind it, of did. Some it of stumbled it, out of the gate. The 3DS did the not issue. have a successful launch. No, mm-hmm. that's that's true. That's that's one thing. But you know, it went on to be a winner. So, you know, I don't really think there's too much more enlightenment we can offer at this time. But uh, I suspect closer to the end of the year, maybe there will be something. Right, let's move on to the next question. Uh, this one from Sven Darlin. Hi, 
exclamation point. On modern GPUs, performance has increased rapidly, and with features like DLSS, etc., rasterization performance is quote-unquote solved. Uh, yeah, for current generation yeah. games. However, CPU performance is not improving at the same pace. Uh, but there's a lot of untapped potentials in multi. But there's a lot of untapped potential in multi-core CPUs. CPU CPU limited games are often limited by one or a few threads. They are CPU limited, while total CPU usage is actually low. Is there a solution for this? Is it possible for developers to write games that are less limited by a single thread performance, or is there another solution aside from DLSS three? And this ties into another question which we had from yeah. um, Kurtz. His question, I thought the massive jump in CPU performance would be one of the most significant features of this console generation. I expected substantial improvements in physics, AI, and simulation complexity in general. This hasn't happened. And so I'm surprised that we find ourselves already hitting CPU limits on PCs with comparable or even generationally faster CPUs in the latest and greatest games. Did it all go towards draw calls and ray tracing? Have we already hmm. gobbled up the potential with slightly more clutter and improved lighting? I know, <laughs> I know, y'all like ray tracing and all, but I'm hon- honestly a bit disappointed myself. myself. So yeah, Alex, this is an interesting question because going into this console generation, we were looking at you know a, a proper generational leap in CPU performance compared to what we've seen before, and um, you know there is the the concept that you know you might argue that. The CPU side of things was actually not a problem anymore, and it was more, you know, the concept of addressing a 4K display with what are what or what have become mid-range GPU parts. But mm-hmm. we are facing CPU problems, and there are utilization problems, and I do think it could be improved. I don't know what you think. I think so too, because uh, the games that I'm gonna this is gonna sound really negative, but the games that we've seen with a lot of CPU issues tend to be Unreal Engine games. Um, and that's because the original like Unreal Engine 4 architecture, and it's carried over a bit to Unreal Engine 5 as well too, is um, so for like, there's a render thread and it's not split up with a bunch of other threads. It's literally just running on one thing. And then there's like a simulation thread and stuff too. And Unreal Engine games are really good in the aspect is that someone can pick up the engine and they can uh, prototype things with a blueprint uh and get some gameplay in there with blueprint and it you know you have already your concept there uh and it and it flushes out maybe to a full game at some point but according to everyone out there that deals with these things day to day blueprint is a really bad way to get good cpu utilization uh, for many cores uh and if a game comes out that is using a lot of blueprint and it has not changed the base rendering architecture of unreal which i doubt a lot of games would do to make it more multi-threaded on the rendering thread side of things, then it's going to have these issues. And that's why we see in games that are coming out that tend to be Unreal Engine, the ones I've covered before in the past on the channel, I don't even need to mention them anymore. We've got our Callisto Protocol. We've got our Gotham Knights. We've apparently got a new title that does the exact same thing. Um, It's not so surprising. And I think we do need different engines and or a new rethinking of Unreal Engine Maybe when Unreal Engine 5.2 comes out or 5.3, we're going to see this behavior changing a bit because I think um, if a bunch of developers come up to Epic over time and saying, we're having trouble hitting 60 FPS in our games due to your base engine design, um, then Epic will move gears and things will change, I think. And that's probably what could happen on the Unreal inside of things. For other game engines, it's 
uh, it's hard to say it's from game to game different, but there's game engines that I think really totally use a lot of uh, CPU threads and uh, most of the Ubisoft stuff that isn't um, uh, the Dunya engine. Uh, I thought um, CD Projekt Red's work was always pretty good at this beyond the re-release of The Witcher 3 and, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, there's that. Uh, I think it will change uh, when Unreal Engine changes drastically over the next couple of years, which I hope and presume it will. Um, the other thing is very interesting because we technically, your other question here is about, have they been using it for ray tracing? And I think, uh, you have to look a little bit more at the titles. I was really surprised. So if you go and look at, um, Sp Spider-Man running on a base PS4 and you go to, uh, Spider-Man running in its 30 FPS mode on PS5, another 30 FPS mode, you'll see a huge increase in the amount of pedestrians and the amount of traffic that is going on they're actually using it for that on top of the ray tracing structure as well but then you go down to the performance mode on ps5 and you'll see that it actually has technically a little bit less pedestrians than the ps4 version because they're trying to hit 60 fps too while also doing ray tracing so there's mm. there's push and shove there but i think if you look at the 30 fps modes in games that are cpu limited on console you'll see big differences it's just more like when you get to that 60 fps mode where you have to like pick and choose ray tracing at 60 fps or a bunch of other simulation at 60 fps mm. yeah any thoughts on this john i mean we were expecting to see you know very different games i guess cross-gen mm. has kind of uh uh, put the dampeners on that to a certain extent, having to accommodate those older CPUs. So, you know, we did in the initial stages at least get quite a lot of 120 hertz titles because the CPU wasn't really being touched. But I guess, as Alex says, if you're going to be increasing fidelity to a dramatic scale, there's a CPU penalty for that. Yeah, I mean, not looking at the specific hardware, I think it's more, there's also just like, uh, it's a developmental approach uh, these, the things that people ask for, like physics and AI, like people have been asking for this for years with every new generation. And I don't think it's always necessarily, oh, the hardware can't handle what people are desiring. It's more the, the creators have to build these systems and make them interesting. I mean, the types of uh, rigid body physics and destruction that Crisis did in 2007 is still awesome. And very few games offer anything like that today. They could, but they don't. Uh, and I think that's an example of a game where, you know, if somebody were to try to implement things similar to that, even now, it would be pretty impressive and cool. Uh, and that's not really a limitation of the hardware more, just that's what they've chose to, to focus their design on. So, uh, yeah, there's this classic videos, like, I guess it was the Crackdown versus Crackdown 3 video. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It seemed to show that the physical, uh, the physics simulation in the new game was actually inferior to the initial game. <laughs> it is basically down to the to the focus of the developers, right, in what they want from the game, as opposed to what the new hardware is capable. Just of. look at uh, like Halo One and the stuff people were doing with that. And there's like warthog jumps where they're like exploding grenades under a warthog and the way it goes <laughs> flying. Like people had tons of fun with physics and sandboxy elements back then. And it does feel like it's been kind of pulled in to make things that are more, that look more cinematic, right? Because once you introduce physics, things can get weird. But I think people like that sometimes, you know, so. Yeah, I think they do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. Um, let's move on to the next question. This one <laughs> from Smug goat 
Um, Hello DF crew exclamation point. This question is for Alex. Recent games like Dead Space Remake, Hogwarts Legacy and Forspoken seem to be requiring much more VRAM. Cards like the 3080 and even 3080 Ti seem to struggle at 4K with VRAM here. Will this be a trend? This is a really good question, right? This is a very uh, good question. There's there's Um, basically the the concept of um, (laughs) competence of the developer the idea of scaling to future hardware that will have much more VRAM as a matter of course. Um, and, you know, whether the baseline set by the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X is, you know, by setting a higher standard in terms of what's required to house all of those assets. Yeah, I think <clears throat> for 4K output, I would say the xbox series x and ps5 have made it so that uh 4k output you can't trust eight gigabytes of vram for sure to give you a similar level of baseline texture quality um uh and also feature sets as in turning on ray tracing but for 10 gigabyte and 12 gigabyte cards that's where i'm a little bit confused about the vram here and the thing is the titles that we're looking at here um with dead space and hogwarts legacy it's like getting the proper um, console settings and then comparing is really, really important because then it gives you a sense of whether or not this is justified or not. Um, and I think that's what needs to be done when we do critique games for the VRAM usage is like, just look, look, look at, see what the consoles are doing. And then you get a sense of like, actually, maybe they're using like the medium texture setting or maybe they're not using the ultra texture setting and things like that. So then you get a better sense of that. And I think when it's done for titles like this, we'll know a bit better, but I'm still, I'm still a little bit shaky on whether this is a trend of things to come necessarily uh, for something like a 10 gigabyte or a 12 gigabyte card with eight gigabytes. I w- I've basically ever since the 3070 launch, I've been writing off a uh, consistent 4k performance there necessarily, but with those 10, 12 gigabyte cards, I'm still a little bit on the fence as to what it means because one, you have settings that you can adjust, and two, we're seeing cross-gen games. And a lot of features that these cards support uh, in regards um, to like sampler feedback, streaming, et cetera, and direct storage, which basically add as a multiple, they're like multipliers for the current VRAM pool. They're definitely not being used in games at all. We've we've heard of no game using SFS or uh, sampler feedback yet, really at all. And like virtual texturing systems, for example, like you see in Unreal Engine 5, I have yet to, in any of the Unreal Engine 5 things I've tested, experienced huge VRAM issues or texture issues on 8 gigabyte GPUs yet, even when outputting at 4K, because they do they do an entirely different way of understanding the way texture should be brought into main memory and the way they're displayed. So I think if we're looking at a game that is coded in an older style of way of doing things, it can have more a higher chance of having VRAM issues than one that is taking advantage of the feature set brought on by a DirectX 12 Ultimate um, and direct storage. So it could be a medium term issue that then maybe clears up a bit more as games use more advanced feature sets. Uh, but right now, I'd say the thing you should look towards doing is actually reducing the v, uh, the texture quality in games and seeing what it actually is doing to the textures. In a game like <laughs> Forspoken, it does awful things to the textures because <laughs> the game obviously was not made in a really great way based upon 
a lot of things that you see in that game. Uh, but in other games, like we've seen with um, Doom on its Ultra Nightmare versus its Ultra settings, it doesn't affect the texture quality at all. It's mainly about caching. So uh, your mileage may vary. And I'd say be a bit more, uh, you know, you know, a bit, bit more amenable to changing those texture quality settings depending upon what they do in the game. And don't get angry if a game doesn't work fine at Ultra because Ultra is not optimized. That's not what Ultra should be. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Any input on that one, John? I mean, it is. Um, I think there is mm. always the fact that users tend to ramp up everything to Ultra and just kind of, you know, hope for the best and if it isn't working well blame the hardware or the or the developer i think there has to be a certain degree of future proofing for the game for future hardware but at the same time if your you know 16 gig amd card is running it just fine while your nvidia 10 gig card is folding like a card table that's 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 not a good look no Mm -hmm. uh yeah a lot of the past (laughs) decisions made with some of these gpus is definitely proving to be difficult now but I, I like your point about ramping up everything to ultra and being disappointed with it. And I think that's where Alex has done a lot of good work in the last few years is sort of trying to highlight when and how you can essentially solve this problem and have still have a beautiful, good experience, even when lacking on certain aspects. But even in, even then, it doesn't always work, as we saw with Forspoken, which was just like... <laughs> There's nothing you can do, and that that is a shame. It doesn't make that much sense to me, honestly. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's yeah. also the concept of what your market is. You know, if the fact is there's a, a huge amount of eight gigabyte cards out there, you know, putting your game out there with no indication that you're going to struggle with your hardware is not a good look. <laughs> you know, at least have something in the settings to say, you know, basically what you said in your video alex about you know laying out what's best for the pc user in their games which is to say you know show the difference and um you know show the the requirements from the hardware agreed Uh, yeah Yeah. fair enough um final question this one from uh, joe tanko why does no game support 50 hertz mode when most if not all tvs support (laughs) it it's being 50 hertz (laughs) so this is something we've discussed fleetingly few times in the past really yeah. yeah which is that you know if your if your game is struggling to hit 60 frames per second there is the option to actually switch to a 50 hertz output because the hgtv spec actually supports 50 hertz it has to for the european market i can't think of any screen uh, any tv screen that doesn't support 50 hertz simply because it's got to work in the in the european market and when you have a 50 hertz mode, basically you could change your target performance level from 60 to 50 frames per second. While it's not as good, it still looks really, really smooth. Yeah. John, thoughts on this one? I mean, we, we've, we've often referred to it in the past of, you know, the option of switch, switching your PC to 50 hertz. It's like the poor man's G-Sync. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Where, what do you reckon? Oh, I mean, I think it's just a case of the consoles themselves are not capable of outputting 50 hertz in games. Series are, at least Xbox One supported 50 hertz for some video content, but I don't think they allow developers to actually output 50 hertz for games. There's nothing stopping them from doing it. No, I think, I feel yeah. like the console manufacturers would have to implement support for this, right? Yes, and they would. I think Explicitly. they absolutely could. There's no technical reason why they could not do that. Uh, they just have not. And I think that would be an interesting solution because it is uh, 
it's easier to hit that target frame rate and it would look a lot better than like 50 to 60 right yeah mm-hmm. i think the issue is also that it adds quite a lot to the qa side of things oh yeah supporting 50 hertz there's also the question of you know well 60 hertz is the standard i mean we've basically said that a screen has got to support 50 hertz but does it is it going to happen i actually Can wonder how many on that? truly do I, I'm also curious about whether or not the like the low latency modes of televisions even work in like 50 hertz. The, you know, like because yeah. all those modes are just like very nebulous on televisions. It's like the, you have to switch to PC for all these things to work or don't work. And what happens when you go into the 50 hertz mode? Does it enter like a cinema mode and it has all this horrible post processing you can't turn off? There's a lot of <laughs> things that I'm not sure that the developers want to deal with when it comes to this. The other thing, of course, is that if you can't sustain 50 frames per second, then you know your frame times on dropped frames are going to be significantly longer than a dropped frame at 60 hertz. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a, there, there are, I mean, it is a good idea in theory, um, but in practice, there's a lot of question marks over it. And uh, it's probably just for simplicity's sake, best to stick with how we are already and to be honest the way things are at the moment is that you know new screens have vrr support which is you know infinitely superior to locking Mm -hmm. to any specific frequency so i'd say that maybe there could have been an argument for this in the ps4 era uh xbox one era but in the current era today not much just just rely on vrr that's the way forward i think 100 okay but that was the final question and that means that we're at the end of the show so please do uh like subscribe share if you enjoyed it ring the bell for those notionally instant notifications as always no guarantees that is our disclaimer uh, we'll be back next week for DF Direct Weekly number 99 <laughs> uh, as we close in on the big 100 um, but that's all from us for now Thanks for watching.